Coming up on Venture Voice. To be an entrepreneur, you have to gain experience. Go try to find your own Dave Packard. They're out there. So to go to work for a dynamic company, not too big, but not too small, where you will learn as much as possible, where you'll get some responsibility as quickly as possible, then, if you're still so inclined, become an entrepreneur, building on what you've learned. And only after you've been enormously successful would you think about venture capital, if at all. Welcome to Venture Voice. This is Greg Gallant. For this episode, we're revisiting my 2007 interview with Tom Perkins, the co-founder of Kleiner Perkins. Kleiner Perkins is probably one of the most storied venture capital firms in existence, but it's little known Tom also worked at Hewlett-Packard. He was one of the uh, very early employees there and started his own business that made him a millionaire. This was an extra fun interview to revisit because today there's so much talk that there's too much money in venture capital. But even in 2007, when it felt that way, and I asked Tom about it, he said there's always been too much money in venture capital. Thinking about scale too, it's wild to think that when Tom was starting, venture capital was really just a tiny cottage industry. His first fund was the biggest fund in VC ever, and it only had $8 million, which today would be about the size of a startup Series A. Now, of course, you've got to adjust for inflation, but it still reminds you how much smaller and more nascent the business venture capital was when Tom was getting started. Sadly, Tom passed away in 2016, but I'm really grateful I got to meet him during his trip to New York in 2007 when we recorded this interview in person. And I'm really glad I have stuff like this to dig out of the vaults and share with all of you. As a reminder, we switch off every two weeks between these old revisited episodes and brand new ones. So stay tuned for the next one for a new show. And in the meantime, enjoy this episode. Tom, welcome to Venture Voice. Well, great to be with you. So you came from a fairly humble backgrounds and then went off to college and uh, eventually got into business for yourself. But can you tell me back your childhood and when you were a student and in college, what were your ambitions back then? Okay, well, I, <laughs> I went to uh, high school in White Plains, New York, which is sort of a bedroom community for New York City. But nobody in my family had ever gone to college, and I wasn't planning to go to college. And I was just working various odd jobs and stuff at high school. And one of the things I was doing was, uh, in those days, you could build kit television sets. They were much cheaper than the kind you bought. So I was building them and selling them and, you know, making a little money on them. And I, I sold one to my high school physics teacher, who I knew very well, and he he liked me. and he said, you've got to go to college. So he came over to my house one night after dinner and persuaded my parents to let me go. And he said he would help me try to get a scholarship and all that. My parents were sort of indifferent. They didn't care one way or the other. I did get the scholarship and I did go to MIT. Very grateful I went to MIT. It was a terrific education, which I've basically used for the rest of my career. So when you were at MIT and just kind of getting to college, did you have in mind already that 
you wanted to go into business. Uh, certainly, you didn't know that you wanted to be a venture capitalist since that was uh, early in the industry. But was that your ambition, or were you just thinking about? No, I I wanted to be a theoretical physicist. I loved physics. I still love physics, and I started down that path. And then I encountered real geniuses in physics. I'll never forget an exam once. There were five of us taking it. And the professor had just one question on the paper. Four of us just looked at it, signed our names, and left. And the fifth guy did a solution so brilliant that the professor got it published in the physics review. And that's the day I decided that I was not going to try to be a theoretical physicist. So I transferred into electronic engineering, and I worked as an engineer for a couple of years for the Sperry Gyroscope Company in Great Neck, Long Island. But I began to think that maybe uh, business would be a better calling. So I saved enough money and then was able to get myself into the Harvard Business School. And that was the right choice. I Compared to MIT, I found Harvard very easy and that uh, maybe my calling really would be business. But the second great stroke of luck I had, the first was my physics teacher that said, you got to go to college. The second great stroke of luck was to come across the Hewlett-Packard Company, which was then a very small company, uh, around $20 million a year in revenue. This is back in 1957. And I wrote Dave Packard and ended up meeting him in New York for an interview I was so impressed, I I did get the job offer. I didn't talk to anybody else. Went out to California, and Dave Packard taught me everything I ever learned about entrepreneurship. He was a, a giant and certainly the most important influence in my career. You know, tell me that first meeting that you had with him, kind of what struck you about him? How'd that relationship get off to its start? You know, when you started in person. Well, it was very interesting. I took the train down from Boston to meet Packard and Hewlett at the Armory here in New York City. And they were setting up their booth for uh, electrical engineers trade show. And they were literally setting up their booth. They were driving the nails and screwing the screws. So my, I helped them. And I was helping to assemble this thing. And during all of that, they got to know me and they offered me a job at the end of it. But what impressed me so much was that here are these two guys whose names were on the company that were doing the physical work to set up their booth. That would have not have happened in the Eastern sort of companies that I had been familiar with. And they were just exciting guys, geniuses, very demanding, but extraordinary. So I did go back to Hewlett Packard and Over the course of a few years, I had many different jobs in the Hewlett-Packard Company. And Dave Packard was wonderful to work for and to learn from. And he let me do two things simultaneously, which was very unusual. First of all, he decided he wanted to go into the computer business and had developed a computer in the laboratory, put it on the market, and after a full year, not a single one had been sold. There were entirely marketing reasons for that, and I persuaded Packard that maybe I could help in that regard. So he gave me the responsibility, so I started and was the first general manager of the computer business. But at the same time, I had encountered the optical laser, which I'd seen at MIT, 
shortly after it had been invented uh, in the mid-60s. And I had an idea on how to make the laser a practical device, like a light bulb. You just hooked power up and it either worked or it didn't. It would be inexpensive. If it didn't work, you just threw it away. But it would make it possible to use lasers in all sorts of applications that you couldn't use big laboratory curiosity. And I persuaded Packard to let me start a laser company as a moonlighting (laughs) enterprise on nights and weekends. At the same time, I was doing the computer business. And I think maybe Packard was the only individual in the world (laughs) that would have given me that permission because it clearly interfered with my efforts for Hewlett Packard, but he trusted me enough to let me do it. And uh, the computer business turned out pretty well. It's doing $100 billion annually currently, so I think I got it started pretty well. And the laser business did very well, too. I merged it. I never quit Hewlett Packard during that cycle. I merged it into spectrophysics and became independently wealthy as a result of the laser. And it was only after all of that and after I'd been Hewlett's assistant for about three years that I decided I would try my hand at venture capital, which takes us to 1972 when I met Eugene Kleiner and we set up Kleiner and Perkins. Great. So let me ask you, uh, that, as you were saying, that's a really unique thing that you got that chance to moonlight and start a company at Kind of reminds me today, many years later, of uh, the way that Google has 20% time for its employees. You know, what's your thought about that? Like, would you walk away with seeing that your employer let you do that and kind of, you know, what it means for the culture of the company, if it's good or bad? If you were in his shoes, would you have let somebody do that? What was your (laughs) takeaway there? Well, I think as a general rule, you shouldn't do that, but you've got to make exceptions. And uh, if you have the confidence and trust in the people, then by all means do it. Really, Packard and Hewlett uh, founded Silicon Valley, and the the alumni from that organization are just everywhere. They established the ethics and the principles, which we so greatly admire, and which came perilously close to disaster during the spying episode, which would have just shocked and appalled them. But that's another story. (laughs) And so, by the way, why didn't you jump ship with first, you know, with university laboratories when that was going really well? It seems like it'd be appealing to just get the shot at running your own show and being CEO. It was. It was a very tough decision. The reason I didn't is that I was so fascinated by the computer business, which was growing explosively. It was compounding at 30 to 40% a quarter, on and on and on. And it quickly became the largest part of the Hewlett-Packard Company. It was absolutely fascinating to me. We began to compete with IBM uh, successfully and so forth. And I just found it so much more interesting than my laser company, (laughs) which was making me a multimillionaire, but I'd still rather work for Hewlett-Packard. Eventually, I reached the point where I had to either go to the laser company and run it full-time because it was becoming a multimillion-dollar-a-year business, or do something with it, and I decided to merge it into spectrophysics and then stay with HP, which I think was a good decision. (laughs) But it was the laser company that helped me to realize that I personally could do this sort of venture capital that maybe that Dave Packard was doing, because I consider Packard to have been a venture capitalist. Now, he did it all within the Hewlett-Packard company, but he incubated new ideas. He spun out new divisions or new into new markets, financed it all, 
ran it all and truly was way beyond an entrepreneur. And I would say he was a venture capitalist. And I thought, and so did Kleiner, that we could do venture capital the way Dave Packard was doing Hewlett Packard with a very hands-on, deeply involved approach, starting with the idea, trying to get the risk out of the idea, then developing the team, hiring the people, doing the financing, taking it public if necessary, but still staying with it, and on and on into the future, which is kind of the model these days of all venture capital. But when Kleiner and I did it, we were absolutely the first. And our fund was the largest fund in the world for venture capital. And now you'll be shocked when I tell you how big it was. It was $8 million, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, shows you how things have changed. But I think that Kleiner and I pioneered the new, newer version of venture capital, which is now, I suppose, the accepted version. And I'm kind of proud of how we did that. Let me explain. If you go on Google, which is a Kleiner Perkins <laughs> company, and you type in Wall Street Scandal, you'll get about 3 million responses. If you go back on Google and type in venture capital scandal, you'll get maybe a couple hundred thousand responses. And they're all about the pricing of stock options. In other words, there hasn't been a venture capital scandal. And I'm kind of proud of that. And I think it goes back to the way that Eugene and I established our partnership, the way we decided to handle our investors, and the way we hand handled and behaved with the entrepreneurs. And since we were successful quite early with two major home runs, namely Tandem Computers and Genentech, which we had started ourselves and spun out of the partnership, those were so successful that we were easily able to raise more money to keep doing it. And our competitors sort of had to do it the same way for them to raise money. So everybody ended up treating investors more or less in the, I think, intelligent way that we evolved and without the potential for fraud and deception, which is so prevalent on Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you, when you first raised that money, uh, you wrote in your book that before those two early successes, you were having a lot of trouble finding what to do with it, where to put it. I, I was thinking in my mind, why don't you set up a website? And uh, then it occurred to me the web only came along a lot later. What was it like then? I mean, what, it must be scary, right? Sitting well, on that money, it only lasts so long and well, having trouble yeah, finding but, where to put it. But I think we, we decided, look, if we can't find the right things to invest in, let's, we don't have to invest. I think we were somewhat immune from the pressure to invest, which was fortunate because we saw a bunch of really bad ideas. Now, we made a few successful small investments before the big home runs, and we made a couple of foolish ones, as you do in venture capital. But that first fund was just an enormous success, so that it, you know, it underwrote all the subsequent funds, which have also been successful. And speaking of success, at what point along your career, I mean, uh, you know, anywhere from going to college and being the first one in your family to raising this when did you feel like you really made it? Yeah, I don't know. Ask me after. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm there. You know, <laughs> I guess when I made my first million dollars, I figured, well, maybe I know something. <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess that's a eternal measure and right. something that's right. always getting easier, right? You know, tell me when you had the first hit with Tandem Computers at uh, Kleiner Perkins, what was it like? Was it just easy kind of watching this company grow? Was it challenging? Did it take up a lot of your time? What's it like to kind of give birth to a company from a venture fund? Well, Tandem and Genentech were very similar in that they were spun out of the partnership and the CEOs had been Kleiner Perkins partners so that we were extremely close to the venture right from the beginning. In both cases, I was chairman of the board of directors and spending, oh, two to three days a week on the ventures involved in just everything, hiring the people, finding the space, and of course, always raising money. Over the years, my primary responsibility was make sure ventures didn't run out of money and to run the board of directors and so forth. So couldn't have been more involved. And that was the difference in the way Kleiner and I did the venture capital, this deep involvement. And I think that our philosophy was you find the idea and not the individual. You know, our theory is that good ideas come from good individuals, but the idea is the most important thing. And then build the enterprise around that idea with that individual, whether or not the individual has had previous management experience. And over the years, we've had very, very good luck backing individuals that on paper had no reason to think they would succeed, except that their ideas were so good. And we would prefer to start very early with the idea, with the individual, and then gradually build the team around that rather than try to back a team on day one. And if you think about it, there's no, there's no good reason for any great let's say, marketing executive, to join a startup at the highest risk phase of it, which is at the beginning. It's just better to get some of the risk out of the deal and then go hire the best marketing or engineering manager, whatever, in the world. We did that with Compact Computer, which we started. Started with the, you know, the nerds, the technical guys, got the product to work. And meanwhile, we we're doing the marketing and the personnel activities and so forth. And once we felt the risk was out, we hired a great team. For example, we hired the vice president of marketing of IBM to be the compact marketing person. So that was our formula. And it's more common now than it used to be. But in the beginning, that was a rather unusual approach to venture capital. And what was your tactic to find people where, you know, where they have that capability to execute on a great idea and to grow with it when you can't look at the resume and prove it out, you know, on paper, even talking to the person about their experience? Well, in the very beginning, uh, we had to have the ideas ourselves because the entrepreneurs were not coming to us. Now, as time has gone on, you know, we get ideas from all directions. We get them through the mail. We get them over the Internet. We've never, I don't think, financed anything that's come to us through the mail or over the Internet. Almost everything that we end up doing has come to us through something we've already done. Google is a great example. We started Sun Microsystem. It had a, the chief scientist, Andy Bechtelsheim. This was years ago. Andy retired, was out there, encountered the two Google entrepreneurs, thought that they were pretty good, although they didn't have a business plan, but they did have a great technology. He brought it to the attention of our partnership via John Doerr, 
who became excited about it. We put in the money. John went on the board, helped evolve the business plan, hired Eric Schmidt and many others, and it's off and running. So uh, one thing that really fascinated me is that you have the ICU at uh, Kleiner Perkins. So a company gets in trouble, you send it to intensive care. Right. Tell me about what that's like. Like when you see a company get in trouble, are you thinking, oh, God, you know, 90% of them fail at that point or half can be saved? What's, what's well, the ratio like and what do you do? Well, if you've structured the venture properly, you have put the risk, whatever it is, marketing, technology, patents, people, whatever it is, you have to decide what the risk is. And that's, I suppose, where the skill comes. But if you've put the risk up front and you can't get rid of it, with the initial money, it should fail and will fail. And that's fine because you haven't lost very much money. So once you've got beyond that, really, and it got through that high-risk phase, you put in the money, you built the team, and now the venture is going and then something goes wrong with it. That's the point that we put it in the intensive care unit. And what that means is that whoever was the partner that was the champion of that deal essentially surrenders control of it to the entire partnership, and everybody works on it. And it's addressed on a weekly basis with very short-term goals. I mean, stop the bleeding or whatever is needed, just like in a hospital in the ICU. And just like in the hospital, it either makes it and walks out or it dies. And in our case, when it dies, we just we stop the flow of money. <laughs> which is like cutting off the life support in the ICU. And it, maybe that's brutal, but if you don't do that, you fall into the syndrome, you know, enough time and enough money will solve all problems. And <laughs> you can just end up so far into a bad deal that it's awful. So you have to have the discipline to have an ICU and run it the way a hospital runs its ICU, I think. So your funds have done great net-net, but, uh, you know, as you point out, there are always a few that don't make it, which is the one... Oh, we have that- quite a few that don't make <laughs> it. We have, we've done 525 companies, roughly. <laughs> and of those, you know, maybe 20% of them are pretty successful. A larger percentage of them are sort of living, but not very well. And then there's some that are dead. Which would you say was the failure that sticks out in your mind the most and, you know, that gave you the biggest lesson? Not funding Apple Computer. (laughs) (laughs) Eugene and I knew about it. Uh, We knew these two Steves were out there. uh, But we had looked at a couple other personal computer startups that looked dreadful and were dreadful. And I remember we just said, ah, (laughs) that was obviously a huge mistake. So you had the interaction with the Steves? How no, we didn't mean no. Oh. We didn't even meet them, which was shows how bad we are. I'm, if we had met them, I'm sure we'd have done it. I tell that story on myself, but maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it can let a couple of fishes get away, right? Yeah. So as this partnership evolved, how did your role evolve with it? I guess now you're a partner emeritus. Um, how'd that evolution go for you? Well, in the beginning, I was the managing partner, and that meant I had to evolve the partnership, bring in additional general partners, deal with all the limited partners, raise the money, write the quarterly reports, and pretty much do everything. As the other partners gained strength and developed, we became kind of a partnership of equals, and then 
Some years ago, I fulfilled the ambition of every MBA student. I became a junior partner at Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers and stepped back, although still involved, and then ultimately I retired. So that has been the evolution, and now the partnership is run by a team of three partners, uh, Ray Lane, John Doerr, and Brooke Byers. They are essentially the managing partners at the moment. Why did you step back? I should say. Why did I step back? Well, because there are so many other things in life I wanted to do. Also, my late wife became very ill with cancer, and I spent all my time essentially trying to get her through that. I failed, but there just wasn't room in my life to do both. What do you think of this industry that you uh, spawn now, the professional VC industry that have all kind of taken this form, the eight to 10 year cycle? You know, certainly you have a lot of great pride still in the firm that you founded, but what do you think of it on an industry level? Well, I think (laughs) there's always been too much money in venture capital. Even when Kleiner and I were starting, we still had competition, you know, hate competition. But if you look at it now, there's, you know, I don't know how many billions are in it. It's over 20 billion, maybe double that available for high tech venture capital in the United States. And that is a staggering amount of money. And I suppose that the investors in that expect and hope to see their investment multiplied by 10 or maybe even a hundred. Then that number becomes so big that you just know it isn't going to happen. So that isn't going to happen. That means a lot of that money will be lost. But will the people that know what they're doing continue to do well and make money? Absolutely. So I think that if you're in the business and you have the momentum of your sales force, and the sales force are the ventures that you've already financed, I think such partnerships will continue to do very well. The new players, I think it's going to be very tough. Do you think as an industry it's, Are you happy with how it's turned out compared to like Wall Street where you were saying that you had disappointments? Well, I'm happy. I'm happy with the ethical standard of the venture capital industry, which I think is excellent. And, but I don't see how it can continue to grow at the rate it has in recent years. So let me ask you, you're back in New York now and you grew up in this area, though, you know, you spent most of your career out West. What's your feel today for kind of the different, you know, the geography of both where business is taking place and entrepreneurship has taken place and how these companies are evolving on either coast? You know, Silicon Valley is still a very special place. And then the question is, well, okay, what is different about Silicon Valley than elsewhere? And elsewhere has really everything it should take. You've got great universities. I was recently at Duke University, for example. You know, it's very, very strong intellectual capacity there. You've got local venture capitalists. You've got the banks and the infrastructure. It's all in place, but it's still going rather slowly. It's going, but it isn't booming. And I think the difference is a difference in psychology. And I think it's very simple. In Silicon Valley, everybody in Silicon Valley knows somebody that has done very well in high-tech, small business, startup, whatever. Everybody knows somebody. And so they say to themselves, you know, I'm smarter than Joe. If he could make millions, I can make a billion. And so they do. And they think they will succeed. And by thinking they'll succeed, they have a pretty good shot at succeeding. Now, that psychology just doesn't really exist so much 
elsewhere. It does in around Boston, and and of course there are hotbeds of it around the United States. But in general, it's not the way as strong as it is in Silicon Valley. So that's my explanation. But I think time will help, and I think gradually it will spread all over America. You disengage from full-time work as venture capitalist, and, and even when you were doing that, you talk a lot in your book about getting involved on boards, be it nonprofit or um, a much later stage Hewlett-Packard. You also say that you're characterized as being able to radiate tension just by walking into a room. Knowing that and having your time so precious, what led you to get involved both on these nonprofit boards and these public company boards? You know, why do you walk into those rooms? Well, I enjoy business, and for me, it's fun. Of course, I was very flattered to be asked onto the Hewlett Packard board because of my background with Packard and Hewlett and the computer business and so on. So that was a very special thing for me. I went onto the Phillips board because I was curious about how a giant European company operated, and it's a lot different. I'm on the News Corp board because I think Rupert Murdoch is uh, brilliant and uh, fascinating to watch and to help. So different reasons, and, uh, you know, I'm retired, but I'm still working. (laughs) So I don't do new venture capital deals, but I do make some investments of my own here and there, and now I've taken up writing books, and we have to (laughs) plug this book, Valley Boy. It's a great read. Like Donald Trump said on the cover of his book, what a brilliant book this is. So so I have to say that. (laughs) Hey, it's always worth getting into that. And, you know, I actually wanted to ask you about the book. It it really struck me, you know, most people do their memoirs. They start from the beginning and at where they are today. It seems like in your case, it almost be particularly advantageous to do that with your story, humble beginnings, this success. But instead, you start with the scandal when you're on the top of your power and going up against... I didn't want to write a chronological autobiography because it's a trap. Then if you leave out five years or ten years, you know, then where is it? What happened? Why didn't you talk about that? So instead, I wanted to present snapshots of different, quite different things that I've been involved with and with no pretense of having it an accurate history of Silicon Valley or even chronologically uh, coherent. and. You know, some people have not liked that, but most people seem to appreciate it. And it does cover the waterfront, everything from details of starting companies like Genentech into uh, some rather, I think, funny things and a few rather serious other things. Why start with the chapter on HP? Well, I think the general reader out there, if they know my name at all, know it because of all the publicity that surrounded the Hewlett-Packard scandal. So I thought, okay, let's just start with that. They'll say, okay, I remember this guy. And it is the inside story of what actually happened. But it is a rather short chapter, and sort of gets that out of the way, and then it goes into what I really wanted to talk about. So most people have never seen a boardroom, or much less a boardroom of a large public company. Rather than ask about that one, I'm really curious, what's it like being on the board of News Corp? Well, it's unlike being on other boards, (laughs) because Rupert Murdoch is an extraordinary man. He is, well, he's a proprietor. He grew up in the newspaper business. He knows newspapers backwards and forwards. He can write a headline or editorial or, you know, take a, a glance at a paper and know everything about it. But he's built from that into content 
through the Fox Studios and Fox Television and and then now the Internet activities. So he's reaching out and establishing, I think, the most important media company in the world, growing very fast, very successful. He has been a friend for many years. I was very flattered when he asked me onto the board. How'd you get to know him, by the way? Um, I got to know him through sailboats, believe it or not, but that was long ago, and began to think about wanting to get somebody from Silicon Valley onto his board because he was moving in the direction of higher technology all the time. And so he asked me uh, about 10 years ago to go on his board, and I, I did. But News Corp is not your typical board. It's The board meetings are great, exciting, a lot gets done. They're not hung up on the fine print of Sarbanes-Oxley and the compliance aspect, which so dominates other boards of directors. So it's a good board. So, you know, they kind of stay away from all the meaningless stuff. Can you remember like one specific thing that happened that, you know, really made you think, hey, this board's really making a difference for the company? Well, it's it's almost every board meeting. When I say we, obviously we comply with Sarbanes-Oxley and all the compliance stuff, but we do that at the committee level primarily. The board gets through that very quickly, that stuff, and then gets on to the strategic matters. I suppose one of the most interesting recent events is the acquisition of Dow Jones, which is expected to close in days. A very exciting and controversial thing to do, a lot of money involved. You can question, well, newspapers are dying, aren't they? Why would you spend so much money to buy a newspaper? So we've discussed that at length, and I think the answer is this wait and see, and uh, that acquisition will turn out to be very brilliant, I believe. What was your advice to the company when they were first considering that and going through the process? Was it something you were instantly gung-ho about? Yes, but I think most of the board was. I think the board realized that you've got the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, the two most important brand names in media, probably in the world. And the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones had the capability to help build the sort of financial news network the News Corp was already committed to through uh, Fox Business News. So it just seemed like a good step, and I think that can be expanded because financial news services is a hugely successful and growing business. Look at Bloomberg, for example. I think there's great opportunity, and with that brand name, it will, I believe, be very successful. Were you afraid uh, that they wouldn't be able to get it through, that the Bancroft family would be able to put up too much of a resistance? It was really touch and go, I must say. And the, well, you can read all about it. And it's a pretty fascinating story of a dysfunctional family. <laughs> On the flip side with the media, how have you felt about how the media has covered you over the years? Well, until very recently, I've tried to avoid the media and generally thinking that a venture capitalist should be behind the scenes and that the entrepreneur should get all the attention. Then I started, I wrote my novel and I tried to get get some attention for that. And then this memoir. And so these days I yield the arena of self-promotion to no one. And I think, uh, although Paris Hilton is sort of gaining here and there, (laughs) but so quite a different role for me in the last couple of years. And have you learned a lot of lessons? Like, you know, there's kind of a certain art to portraying yourself in the media. And 
Well, I don't know. You, you, you'll have to decide that. <laughs> I try to be pretty frank and, you know, in the same in the book, I, the book is fairly frank. It's interesting to read the reviews over Amazon. I mean, the good ones obviously get the book and understand it and the bad ones, it was over their head, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to respond. How do you spend your time now? Uh, you mentioned you're, you have this amazing sailboat. It must be tempting to spend all your time on it and not to go to Manhattan hotels and fly around. Uh, well, but you don't want to get too absorbed in any one thing. But I've spent less time on the sailboat than I thought I would. And that's just because of, for various things, I've been quite busy in the last year or so. But I'm looking forward now to spending more time on the boat. I'm taking it to the Pacific in February. And then I have my latest project, which is a, a little sports submarine that I hope to finish midsummer and put on the boat and then use that in the Pacific. So are you building that yourself? Just, uh, no, I found a group of uh, guys in uh, the San Francisco Bay area that are building. It'll be the first of its kind. It's not strictly a submarine. It, well, it will go to 400 feet depth. But it's positively buoyant so that if you lose power and if you lose control and if, when it crashes, it floats rather than sinking to the bottom. So I think it's intrinsically safe. I imagine it's less likely you'll uh, meet another, meet a media mogul through submarining as uh, through sailing. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> so let me ask you now, too, um, in terms of kind of how you're continually active with your firm, you were just quoted in the Venture Capital Journal saying about global warming that you're not 100% sure it's caused by man, yet John Doerr is one of the leading advocates for green technology, and uh, he just invited, or Al Gore just joined the partnership. Yes. Well, which so, I'm all for. I The point is, we John and I come out at the same place. I'm just not convinced it's 100% man-induced, maybe 80%, maybe 10%. I don't know. I just don't know. But the I come out at the same place that we have to conserve our fossil resources. We have to clean the atmosphere. We should have more nuclear, more wind power, and so forth. So there's no disagreement on what it means in terms of a business strategy. I just don't know about the science. Do you still spend a lot of time following really cutting-edge technology and looking at things that are in development? No, I'm only interested in certain relatively narrow things. I try to know what's going on in biotechnology. I'm still very fascinated by that. And I still think we're on the ground floor in biotechnology. So just to close up now, if, you know, my one question is if you were kind of where you were back at the start of your career, but in today's world, <laughs> you know, or talking to someone who is, what would your advice be in terms of, you know, what to do, what industries, what kind of attitude to take into the world? Well, I guess I do have advice, and it would be, you know, after you've got the best education you can get, don't go to Wall Street, <laughs> and don't try to become a venture capitalist, at least not in the beginning, but instead be an entrepreneur. And to be an entrepreneur, you have to gain experience. Go try to find your own Dave Packard, and they're out there. So to go to work for a dynamic company, not too big, but not too small, where you will learn as much as possible, where you'll get some responsibility as quickly as possible. Then, if you're still so inclined, become an entrepreneur, building on what you've learned. And only after you've been enormously successful would you think about venture capital, if at all.
Great. Well, that sounds like a great note to end on. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I think it's a reminder that everything that seems old to us or us younger entrepreneurs out there and models that feel like they've existed forever were invented by people within our lifetime. And the way venture capital was set up decades ago was done by people just like you and me. And it's energizing now to see as financing and venture capital is changing, that there's an opportunity to keep evolving everything. I'm grateful to Tom for giving me the time for this episode. May he rest in peace. And please stay tuned for the next Venture Voice episode. The next one will be a brand new episode with a a wonderful entrepreneur that you'll find out about then. And please help spread the word. Go to iTunes Podcasts and leave us a review. Even if you're listening through iTunes, those iTunes reviews really help new people find this podcast. Also hit me up on social media. I'm just at Gregory on Twitter and Instagram. Keep building your businesses. Catch you next time.